you know, every other developed country has some form of universal health care. Uh, and it's just kind of criminal that the United States does not. Um, and I think we're really seeing that play out now where, you know, people uh, people are losing jobs now. And it was the job that gave them health insurance. And then in, in the middle of a pandemic, people are now worried about losing their health insurance. It's completely insane. I do hope that this uh, pandemic, that we will learn from this um, and that we will be, we will have more of an appetite to, to understand the importance of that fight and be willing to have it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational podcast about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, how America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I'm Monica Doyle. I am Anne's niece and the millennial voice of this podcast. Among other things. Among other things, <laughs> among several things. You know, we're recording this episode on March 22nd, 2020. Uh, my brother Tom's birthday, by the way. Uh, as the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic is, uh, this crisis is tightening its grip on the United States and really every continent right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, too many of us, including our own government, really were in denial for too long about the seriousness of this situation. Uh, but I think it was... Uh, I think it was after sporting events finally yeah. were canceled, uh, and then schools, offices, stores. I mean, e even they had to order the beaches to be closed uh, before people started really taking this thing seriously. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, I think for a long time or for a while, people thought it was going to be temporary once they even realized they had to start doing something. And, and now I feel like we're moving into this period of grieving maybe. Monica, and I know you, for example, are just lost your job. Yeah, I was laid off um, due to coronavirus complications at work. You know, with all of these places closing, I there just wasn't any call for my job, and so I got laid off until this thing blows over. Yeah, my son Kevin, your cousin, yeah. uh, he's in the food industry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's laid off, of course, the same thing, you know. And uh, in the New York Times this morning, uh, they called uh, this uh, the coronavirus virus as a time machine to our future. And I thought that really hit the bullseye because it's most definitely has turbocharged us all into like a dramatically changed new normal. Yeah. Uh, as we're starting to see, this isn't going to be temporary. I mean, this could be going on for a while. How do you feel about that? I mean, I've seen... People say anywhere from three more months to, you know, a year. You know, that's what I've been hearing from people. Um, I've kind of been listening to sources without putting too many eggs in each basket just yeah. because of the uncertainty of everything going on. But, I mean, that's kind of, I feel like the bottom line is everything right now is uncertainty. Yeah, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, you know, and um, that's really why this morning's New York Times uh, made a point that we also have to be preparing, um, okay, dealing with the crisis, but preparing for other really important things, such as the November elections, when not only uh, are we going to be voting on a new president, but thousands, really, mm -hmm. of national, regional, local leaders who are going to be elected that are going to shape uh, shape our country. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they were making the point that we have to prepare now to make sure that uh, open, fair, and regularly scheduled elections are still held 
uh, because really that's the foundation of how we are functioning as, as a democracy. Well, and that is why our guest today is a perfect person to talk to about elected leadership in a time of crisis. Kathy Kunkel is an energy policy expert and a longtime community change maker who is running for Congress. She went to Princeton University, studied physics at Cambridge, and began a PhD program in energy policy at the University of California. She has analyzed the economic and financial impact of natural gas drillings and pipelines, fought corporate bailouts for electric electric utilities, and co-founded advocates for safe water systems after serious chemical spills. Uh, And her campaign slogan is, for the many, not the few. Wonderful campaign slogan. I love it. I like that. Yep. She is joining us today from the beautiful state of West Virginia that is known for coal mining and whitewater rafting. And my Uncle Dan, who lives there, welcome, Kathy. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, your Uncle West Dan. West Virginia is known for Dan Doyle. <laughs> my, Dan Doyle. <laughs> my brother, Dr. Dan Doyle, my sister-in-law, your aunt, uh, Monica, Linda Stein, who's a social worker. They're both community organizers down there. Um you know, I know that they brought uh, you to our attention and said, you know, that you would be you would be a great guest to talk about a lot of really important national issues. And but first, you know, your your reaction, Kathy, to that comment about this coronavirus being a time machine to the future, the way it's like suddenly jolted us into dealing with things we thought we might have a few years or decades to deal with. Yeah, it's a really interesting comment because I think um, the coronavirus has kind of laid bare things that were problems in our society, but things that we were not urgently trying to deal with, you know, like uh, like lack of healthcare access and lack of paid sick days for so many people in like food service industries and grocery stores and other sectors of our economy. and you realize suddenly that this uh, ideology of sort of rugged individualism that we've been uh, living in for so long and that, you know, this idea that the free market will solve everything and the government uh, shouldn't be involved in people's lives, like really doesn't work in a pandemic. Yeah, wow. Like some of the very people who maybe were freaking out about Bernie Sanders' socialistic ideas are the first in line screaming for help. Yeah, they they want some help now. Hmm. What have you seen about that, Kathy? Uh, any change in uh, mindsets? I mean, I think it's like too hard to tell. I mean, you know, it's been like, I don't know, 10 days, I guess, that we've been serious about it rapidly evolving situation um but i mean certainly like you know we're seeing it in federal legislation legislation you know people who we thought you know would never say like well let's just mail checks to every american household (laughs) suddenly lining up behind uh that kind of proposal um which is certainly absolutely necessary and like i'm i'm glad that those people are lining up behind that because we need we do need to respond to this crisis in a way uh that you know bails out the workers and small business who are obviously being hit the hardest and you know frankly my fear too is that you know if this drags on for uh, a very long time that um, there's also potential for serious power grabs in the other direction too well and I feel like that's what a lot of stuff has been in the government lately you know trying to escalate one thing so that they can shove something else on our plate in the background when we're not paying attention 
you know, your campaign slogan, For the Many, Not the Few, obviously was created uh, months ago, maybe over a year ago, but it certainly seems uh, more appropriate than ever in terms of this. It's not surprising because, you know, we've, in my campaign, have always thought that there is a really important uh, role for the government in uh, you know, making sure that uh, people do have what they need. And, you know, for the last uh, however many years we've had a government that's really run in the interests of corporate America. And, you know, here in West Virginia, we've had a government at the state level that's always been more run in the interest of out-of-state corporations and the coal industry in particular than the people who actually live here. And so that's kind of what what uh, spurred that slogan in the first place. What prompted you to run? You know, I've been, uh, been working... Uh, in West Virginia for the last decade, living and working here, and I've been involved in a lot of uh, a lot of battles around various things, including, you know, um, Monica mentioned founding advocates for a safe water system after we had a major chemical spill here in Charleston, and that was a community group that fought for three years with our water company to try to win some improvements to the safety of the drinking water system, and I fought with our state's major electric utilities on corporate bailouts that they've tried to get at our expense and uh, fighting back against their attempts to get rid of our rooftop solar laws. And, you know, so I've, you know, for a long time, I've been very frustrated with the lack of political leadership in the state and the sort of inability to stand up to powerful special interests that were not really, um, you know, in the best interest of the people of West Virginia. Um, but this year in particular, I felt like there was a real opportunity to try to make change uh, in the political realm in West Virginia. Um, we have a really exciting um, movement of candidates this year, um, more than 90 candidates who have all signed a pledge to not take corporate money oh, that's uh, in our campaigns. And we're all kind of running together under this banner called West Virginia Can't Wait, um, including a, one of the candidate, Democratic candidates for governor is sort of spearheading the thing. But wow. it's just really exciting. 90 to to candidates to have, signed that? Yeah, yeah. Running, you know, running for office at all levels, House of Delegates, State Senate, uh, city councils, you know, so all up and down the ballot. But but yeah, it's really exciting. I think it's really changing the narrative here in West Virginia and kind of shaking up the the old political establishment of both parties. Yeah, well, and hopefully that's a kind of a direction we're moving towards on even a larger political sense. You know, it would be very nice to see more people running for president, not taking donations from, you know, corporate companies and stuff like that because it becomes about the ideals of those companies and not about the ideas ideals of their constituents right and it just makes it harder for people i think to to trust politicians and you know we've seen this trust in our political institutions erode over the last several decades too i think corresponding to the rise of money in politics and people realizing like you know hey these representatives are actually you know funded by corporate interests and and more interested in serving them than in the people they're supposed to be representing. Yeah, because ultimately, like, it's starting to become, you know, serve the people paying you and not serve, you know, the people who you're supposed to be serving. You're not serving the people who are electing you, you know, you're serving these people who can give you money to, you know, spin your rhetoric in its own direction. Right. And I think, like, that's why, you know, we've not seen real fundamental reform on things that like you know really shouldn't be that complicated but just require actually standing up to special interests like you know there was a, uh, a caravan that went to canada from west virginia uh, a few months ago to like 
purchase insulin and to wow. raise awareness about how much cheaper it is to purchase insulin in Canada than the United States. Wow. There, there's no like, there's no reason that insulin is cheaper in Canada other than the fact that we just let the pharmaceutical industry get away with insane levels of profiteering. Yeah. You know, that brings up this whole wealth gap, and COVID-19 is certainly shining a spotlight on this issue in, in the fact that, you know, so many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, while others, uh, you know, have just uh, an overabundance um, and a obscene uh, amount uh, of the, the wealth of this country. But, Kathy, I'm wondering, what do you see as the fundamental Achilles heel in our economy? Uh, clearly, you are all about making sure that there's an opportunity for all if they work hard and study hard to achieve our, that good old American dream. I mean, what, what can we do immediately to start fixing this, which, uh, you know, if you're elected to Congress, that you would start trying to work on? Mm -hmm. I think healthcare has got to be fundamental in there. And I mean, we're seeing now like how broken our healthcare system is in terms of um, you know people being afraid to get tested or afraid to get treated because of you know worrying about the bills and you know it's great that we passed a bill that uh, people can be tested for free without being billed by the insurance companies for that but people should also be able to be treated for free yeah. I mean, it's kind of insane to say you can get tested but not treated. I yeah. mean, that's um, kind of <laughs> one of the staples of getting this thing gone, you know, is treating every case well let's get right. into that the healthcare yeah. piece of it yeah you know every other developed country has some form of universal health care uh, and it's just kind of criminal that the united states does not um and i think we're really seeing that play out now where you know people uh people are losing jobs now and it was the job that gave them health insurance and then in, in the middle of a pandemic people are now worried about losing their health insurance it's completely insane um and so, you know, we need to have a healthcare system that's not tied to people's employers and that, you know, would give us the freedom to be able to switch jobs or start new businesses without being worried about health insurance. But what do you think is, uh, I mean, is this going to give us the kick in the you know what that um, gets our nation to face that? Because there still had been so much resistance to that idea. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's always going to be a struggle. And once we get past this, it's still going to be a struggle because fundamentally uh, it goes back to the power and wealth that um, the insurance industries uh, have in this country. And, you know, they're obviously going to fight against uh, something that threatens them. And they certainly see Medicare for all as a threat. Um, and, you know, similarly, the pharmaceutical industry, too, is going to fight against a universal health care system where the government's negotiating down prescription drug prices. So, uh, you know, it's it's always going to be a political struggle, but that's why we need to uh, we need to wage that fight. We need to be electing people who are willing to have that fight. And you know, I do I do hope that this uh, pandemic that we will learn from this, um, and that we will be we will have more of an appetite to to understand the importance of that fight and be willing to have it. Well, and I think that that is also an important thing. You know, to talk about especially now is we're seeing you know, the drawbacks to such an entrenched capitalist society right now with, you know, pharmaceutical companies not wanting things to change and health companies not wanting things to change. And, you know, their response to these types of things is capitalism good, socialism bad. 
And we tend to put all of these isms into boxes, and it honestly is damaging how our society is supposed to run because we do have socialism already active in our society and yet we're vilifying it we don't want to turn us into only socialists the same way we don't want to turn ourselves into only capitalists we need to have pieces of all of this to make democracy work to me you know it's always been less about left versus right or democrat versus republican in this campaign and more about top versus bottom and you know recognizing the way in which a wealthy few special interests have really been able to to write the rules of our country and write the rules of our economy so that it continues to work really well for them and continues to funnel wealth upwards while the rest of us struggle and you know yeah well and i feel like the biggest lie of capitalism is that everybody is convincing the people lower down who are actually being damaged by this by a lot of these capitalist policies that they're passing they're convincing them that they want those things you know they're convincing the lower class oh this is good for you when in reality it's not you know, it's fascinating for me as a baby boomer to listen to the two of you because, uh, you know, Monica is uh, a millennial. And I know that, um, you know, Kathy, you are a, a leading edge uh, millennial. I believe you're still in that generation, but you you really are the future. And I'm I'm interested in how you see your generation that is now this year became the majority in the workforce is um, is going to lead this country to uh, a new place. Yeah, I mean, I think our generation has really, um, you know, kind of come of age at a time when we don't have a lot of trust in our political leaders and we see the system as pretty fundamentally broken. I mean, you know, when I, I graduated from college just a couple of years before the financial crash of 2008, so, you know, the major, like, defining political events of my adult life have been things like the Iraq war and the 2008 financial crisis when we bailed out Wall Street and you know let millions of Americans suffer from foreclosures and losing their pensions and things like that and mm -hmm. um, you know fast forwarding to you know the 2016 election debacle and so you know I think a lot of people in my generation just uh, really do see the system as pretty rigged against them and pretty rigged by wealthy interests uh, that are not uh, very responsive to what uh, ordinary Americans actually want. Um, and I think, you know, in talking to people in this campaign, everyone knows that our healthcare system in this country is broken. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, um, you know, ev almost everyone I've talked to has some kind of healthcare horror story from themselves or someone in their family or a friend. and. Um, you know, I think, but people just don't see a lot of political will to actually take that on and really try to solve it in a way that would make people's lives better off. But people fear change. Millennials don't. <laughs> <laughs> Millennials are all for change. I think older generations fear change because they have been entrenched in a certain way that society is supposed to be run for a very long time. And that's not just with politics. That's also with things like gender roles. That's also with things like religion. That's also with things like how people present themselves in society. And I don't think people fear change. I think some people fear, fear change and the people that fear change are running everything. Kathy, weigh in here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you just if you look at how well Bernie Sanders does among young people uh, versus older generations, I think that certainly bears out Monica's point. Yeah, <laughs> it's one data point in support of it for sure. 
You know, one thing I, I uh, over and over during this conversation, I hear you use the word fight over and over again. And uh, I mean, I, I hear you defining yourself as a fighter. Where did that come from? Tell us a little bit more about you in terms of when it was maybe you growing up or the role models and mentors that uh, triggered that in you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it was something that happened more as an adult and getting more into uh, into politics and seeing like so so much uh, injustice in the world around me. Because I, you know, I did grow up uh, in a pretty like uneventful middle class life and it really wasn't struggling and um uh, did not have to be much of a fighter you know i when i was growing up i was pretty into math and science and you know got into physics in college and um you know would not have would not have seen myself uh running for congress that's for sure if you told me <laughs> 20 years ago that this is what i would be doing now i think i would have been pretty surprised uh-huh. um so but yeah no i think it was um certainly moving to West Virginia has, has made a major impact on my life. And, you know, I remember moving here um, when I was living in the southern part of the state originally. Because um, you're not from West Virginia originally, right? No, I grew up outside of Baltimore. Okay. Uh, um, All right. And then your work yeah. and opportunity brought you to West Virginia? Right, right. Yeah. And when I was first living in the southern part of the state and sort of seeing uh, the damage, uh, that the coal industry was doing, uh, to, you know, pollution and impacts to the land and water. And I was really surprised that, uh, you know, that it was not illegal. Uh, and then I realized that in fact, a lot of it technically was illegal, but like, you know, the violations and the fines that the coal companies were getting were so minimal that they just sort of assumed it all as part of the cost of doing business. And so, Mm you know, I really just saw the way in which um, they had really, the industry had really captured like the state regulatory ap- apparatus and the state political apparatus and, um, you know, was able to, to run things in a way that, that benefited them and, you know, left people whose, whose water sources were destroyed or whose uh, homes were damaged by blasting really without much uh, recourse. And um, so, yeah, you know, and that's just, you know, one of many examples, I think, when we see in our economy today of what I was talking about earlier, where, you know, a wealthy few really are writing the rules so that they can keep getting richer and uh, the rest of us, well, you know, the economy is not working really well. And actually, the coal miners were um, one particular example that I had in mind when I mentioned earlier that, you know, they're convincing these groups of people that, you know, capitalist society will benefit them when in reality it will damage them. The coal miners are a very big example of that. In 2016, we saw with Trump and Hillary Clinton, you know, they took one soundbite from Hillary Clinton where she said, we're going to get rid of all the coal jobs, and they all went on that, when in reality she said, we're going to get rid of the coal jobs and replace them with better jobs, was the full soundbite. But, you know, Trump ended up aiming for these coal miners and telling them that it would benefit them to vote for him when in reality their jobs are just disappearing because of you know natural I I mean it's just the natural way of the world you know we're finding new resources coal is becoming obsolete and Trump is saying he's going to keep getting their jobs like making more coal jobs when in reality they just don't exist anymore. Kathy give us some perspective from the front lines on that. Yeah I mean I was going to say you know in the in defense of uh, coal miners, I think people, you know, there's, there is a face and a family behind every coal mining job. And, um, 
you know, I think Hillary Clinton was seen, you know, and the remark was taken out of context, but I think she was seen as, as insensitive to that. And, um, you know, frankly, the amount of resources that have been um, uh, redirected back towards Appalachia by the federal government to try to compensate for the decline of coal mining have been really basically nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and like the decline of coal really has had a tremendously negative economic impact on certain parts of West Virginia and other parts of Appalachia. And, you know, it, my perspective, the rest of the country owes a real debt to this part of the country here in West Virginia for for having uh, powered the country for so long, having sacrificed so much um, in terms of, of coal mining. And, um, you know, we really do need to bring bring real federal resources to bear on sort of revitalizing the economy here, building the infrastructure that we need, like safe drinking water and internet, like, you know, basic things for the 21st century so that we can have new jobs here. Do you have any ideas for like ways to help these coal miners whose jobs are, are going away as just a natural part of, you know, society? I mean, I think free retraining definitely, definitely needs to be part of it. Um, but I think we also need to make a, a more serious federal investment in these actual areas because, you know, there are other jobs, but they are not generally in southern West Virginia and people have family ties. Yeah, they and they want to support stay in the region where they grew up. And that's totally understandable. Uh, and we should be, you know, encouraging uh, people to do that. And, you know, I think infrastructure in the, in the short term, infrastructure investment is a huge way to put people back to work and and build a foundation for other sectors of the economy in that part of the state to be able to grow. And part of that has also got to be like environmental reclamation jobs, because yeah. basically, you know, the coal industry came in and tore up the land and water and went bankrupt and left a giant mess. And what about role models? I mean, you talked about the cultural economic forces that really kind of shaped you uh, as you were coming of age. But um, who's inspired you as you were growing up and um, coming of age and thinking yourself about stepping into leadership? I think it's mostly been like people, people that I've worked with, people that I've volunteered with. Like um, you know, I had a friend when I lived in the Bay Area for a couple of years who really got me involved in a, a community organization um, in Richmond, California. Um, that was actually kind of my first um, taste of local politics. Um, and kind of an inspiration for what we're doing now, really. It's a, um, it's a group in uh, Richmond, California, which is a city that's been dominated by the oil industry for forever, specifically by Chevron, which has a big refinery there. And they uh, have, uh, for probably almost two decades now, run candidates for municipal government um, who have not taken corporate money, which you know specifically there means not being in the pocket of Chevron. Um, and over time, they've built up to a majority on the city council, and they've really changed like the direction of the city and the politics to the city. Um, and so, you know, some of the leaders of that organization that I got to be introduced to when I was out there were really um, the long-term role models for me. Wow. Well, that's always good to know. And I know, you know, lots of young people are looking to have role models in government right now. So, kind of trying to. <laughs> To align that goal a little bit, some, and of, some new ones are emerging. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're trying to to make more 
people to look up to in government. And our goal with Powering Up uh, podcast is to intrigue and inspire listeners with fascinating people and ideas for unleashing their power. Um, Would you share something that you've learned about claiming your power and speaking up, particularly about encouraging other women to run for office? You know, I think it's a, it's can be a scary thing to step into. I mean, it was for me certainly. You know, I spent many months debating whether or not I actually wanted to to do this or not. Um, but you know, I would encourage uh, women to do it. I mean, I think once you're once you're out there and in it and doing it, um, you know, there's obviously frustrations and um, you know sexism that you run into on the campaign trail, but. I've also just met so many like great people in West Virginia doing work that I otherwise, you know, would never have encountered or not, never ha- otherwise have any reason to to run into. And so that's just been a really uh, wonderful experience in and of itself. Yeah, well, and I should hope that, you know, the the other women you meet are also encouraging and helping you. You know, I think that's one of the biggest things nowadays that we as women have to do is encourage other women. Yeah, and it's really um, it's really great uh, that um, this West Virginia can't wait group of candidates that I mentioned before. You know, this more than ninety candidates who are running together. It has created a real community of people who are collaborating. You know, more than I've ever seen candidates really collaborating with each other in the past. Um, and you know, a lot of us are women, and um, a number of the candidates are teachers as well, um, which I think is really neat, just given the the recent uh, school employee strikes that we've had in West Virginia over the last couple of years, it's really great to see some young women teachers, especially stepping up and running for office. Yeah. Well, I'm a gigantic advocate, as is Monica, uh, of the importance of, uh, you know, women being um, equal uh, mothers of our human family and our country in in terms of leadership roles and, and shaping our policy and laws and obviously running for Congress is really, really important for that. So congratulations. Thank you for running. And how can our listeners um, get in touch with you, maybe read more about your positions on some of these issues and um, and maybe even support or donate to your campaign? Yeah. Um, the best thing to do would be to go to kunkelforcongress.com. And my name is spelled K-U-N-K-E-L. Uh, and we have really detailed platform information on the website, as well as the donate button for anyone who is uh, interested in doing that. And obviously, like I said, I'm not taking any corporate money. So uh, we are very much reliant on individual uh, contributions in this campaign. Yeah. Yep. So anybody in West Virginia who likes what they hear, hit or, the donate button. Or anywhere. Or anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Hit that donate button. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Kathy Kunkel, um, congressional candidate from West Virginia, energy policy expert, community change maker, um, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a great discussion, and thanks for uh, having me on. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. Let's all go. Power Power up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at LDR on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.